is the Church Law Podcast, where you can get practical solutions for today's leaders. I'm your host, Erika Cole, the church attorney. Welcome back to the Church Law Podcast. I'm your host, Erika Cole, known as the church attorney, and I'm glad you're joining us. I can't even believe that here we are in the final quarter of the year. The end of the year is a unique time where we find ourselves trying to complete major tasks for the current year, all while positioning ourselves well for the upcoming year. Plus, there's some critical must-do items that if you don't take care of them before year end, you don't get a second bite of the apple. So today we are discussing end-of-year to-dos for you and your church when it comes to legal and tax compliance matters. And I'm excited to have a special guest. Richard Hammer is co-founder and senior editor of Christianity Today's Church Law and Tax. He is an attorney licensed to practice in the state of Missouri, and he holds a CPA certificate from Missouri State Board of Accountancy. He is a graduate of Harvard Law School and attended Harvard Divinity School. He is also admitted to practice before the United States Tax Court. And in 2009, he joined the ranks of some 270 other individuals when he passed the examination to become a registered parliamentarian with the National Association of Parliamentarians. Rich specializes in legal and tax issues for churches and clergy. He is the author of several books published by Church Law and Tax, including Pastor, Church, and Law, 5th edition, and the annual Church and Clergy Tax Guide. He writes numerous articles published each month on churchlawandtax.com. Rich is a frequent speaker at legal and tax conferences, occasionally teaches church law at seminaries and colleges, and often consults with attorneys, CPAs, and church and denominational leaders on legal and tax issues. He recently presented at the Church Compliance Conference, the conference that I had the pleasure of starting back in 2007. Welcome to the Church Law Podcast, Rich. A pleasure to be with you. I'm glad you're here. First, while I've had the pleasure of knowing you for several years now, the first time I think was meeting you at a luncheon that ECFA was hosting, also by virtue of my service as a senior editorial advisor of Church Law and Tax, and you are a much lauded speaker um, who's spoken at my church church compliance conference for the past couple of years. Um, but I don't know if I've ever heard the story of how you came to focus your career on church law and tax. Would you mind sharing with me and the listeners a bit about that? Isn't it interesting how seemingly insignificant events can change the course of our lives into an arena that we never anticipated? And, and so it was with me. It, it all happened because I was asked to teach a course on church legal issues for pastors at a local seminary. And I knew nothing about that. I, I you know, there's no courses in law school I'm aware of that, that address that. So, and I said, sure, I'll do it. Now, this is many years ago. And I thought there would be several books out there from which to choose a textbook for my class. And I was shocked to, to discover, this was before the internet, that, but there was something called books in print where you could go and find books that were in print by subject. And I still like those. <laughs> yeah, but there was a, a book written in 1917 by a banking attorney called American Church Law. And 
long since out of print. I could, I never have seen a copy of it. And it was obsolete, of course. But uh, so I, I started teaching this class. I knew nothing, but I scrambled for month after month going to the law library uh, every Saturday, all day Saturday with two little babies at home and my wife. And every Wednesday night, I'd be at the library till 10 o'clock, you know, just reading every case I could find dealing with churches uh, or pastors. And all of us, I started making note cards and this is pre-laptop computers. And uh, eventually an outline coalesced and that outline became my first book, 1983, Pastor, Church, and Law, first edition, that I thought would be used by a couple of hundred seminary students every year. But it just shocked me that the thing immediately rose to 25,000 copies sold. And all of a sudden, people are looking to me like I'm an expert in the field. I was over my head, believe me. But, you know, over time, you do begin to develop an, ex, some level of expertise. And, and so it was with me. But I've often thought, had I not been asked to teach that course, I never would have gotten into this field. So that's, that was kind of, uh, it's kind of an interesting story. That's pretty amazing. I never knew that. I don't remember hearing that story before. That's, yeah. that's pretty powerful. Um, well, as earlier mentioned, the end of the year is a great time to review the past year, complete important tasks left undone, and get a jump start on moving into the new year. So we are going to be talking today about what churches should do as we are entering the end of the year. Um, what are a few of the critical tasks that churches should complete before year end? Well, let me just run down a, a, a laundry list here of things, and, and then we're going to come back and focus on uh, three or four of them. But on my list of things, uh, of end of year tasks, would include a number of things, such as designation of a housing allowance for your clergy on staff. You got to do that. And we'll come back to that issue in a minute. But because if you don't do that, that benefit is lost. Now, what about handling year-end contribution receipts? Or what about that first Sunday in January of, uh, of the new year? What, what about people that write a check the day before on Saturday, and they date it Saturday, and they drop it in the operating on Sunday? Is that a, what year contribution is that? The year of the deposit or the year that the check was actually written? Uh, so that's very important. Church treasurers go crazy over these issues sometimes. You know, how do I allocate? How do I assign deductibility of the, all these contributions? And then you have the situation I've seen many times where a pastor will tell the congregation on before the offering on the first Sunday of the new year, you know, if you really want to have this as a last year's donation, just predate it to last year. We'll be, we'll be sure you, you get credit for last year. Not this. You can't do that. Charitable contributions are effective as of the date of delivery. So when is delivery? When you put that envelope or that check in the offering basket, okay? Uh, You can't pre-designate it like that. Now, there's one exception, and that's what's called the mailbox rule, that if you put a check in the mail in year one and it's uh, not received by the church until year two, that's a year one contribution, even though the church didn't receive it till year two, even though it was kind of delivered physically in year two. That's the one exception. That's called the mailbox rule. If you put the check in the mail and it's postmarked year one, 
it's a year one contribution, even though the church doesn't see it till year two. So that's that's a very important clarification. I, I think it's important for churches toward the end of the quarter, toward the end of the year, to uh, put a little announcement in the bulletin or maybe the church newsletter, maybe just you know state this from the pulpit, that for it to be tax deductible, a contribution of $250 or more must meet a number of requirements, but one of them is it must be contemporaneous. And that means the church must issue the contribution summary or the contribution receipt to the donor by the earlier of the date the donor files a tax return or the due date for the return itself. And so you see this happen sometimes in, in early January, where the church hasn't issued a receipt yet, but the donor goes ahead and makes files his tax return early. And that is, you, you run the risk here of people filing their tax return before they get the receipt from the church, that that's not contemporaneous and, and they're going to lose a deduction for it. So hang on, be patient. And I think church, it's very important for churches to uh, alert donors, don't file your tax return until you receive the receipt. So what happens is sometimes churches take a long time to file these, to mail these receipts to members. It may be feb- mid-February or later. And the longer you wait to give those receipts to your donors, the more likely it is that they're going to file their return before they get the receipt from the church, which jeopardizes the deductibility. So very important point. You know, be patient. And then, um, you know, how about a W-4 form? And that's the employee's withholding certificate. It used to be called withholding allowance certificate, but we don't have allowances anymore. But this is it's basically it's only two things you have to check on this form. It's very simple. It just gives the the church, the employer, the uh, information regarding your filing status. Are you married? Are you single? What's your filing status? That's the most important thing on this form. They need that in order to go to the tax withholding tables in Publication 15 in order to withhold the correct amount from each paycheck. So, uh, and here's another one: Christmas gifts. Many churches give Christmas gifts to uh, staff members. Sometimes, you know, I've been a fifth grade Sunday school teacher for 35 years and uh, a high school Sunday school teacher for about the last five. I get a $5 Starbucks card every year at Christmas. That's my gift. (laughs) Hey, believe me, my award is going to be in heaven. I like Starbucks and $5 doesn't go that far. So God bless you. Did you get anything for that? So anyway, but, you know, that, that's taxable income. And so there, there is an exception, and that's called a de minimis exception. And that if the value of, of a goods or service that is provided is so small that it becomes what's called administratively impractical to account for it, then you don't have to account for it. That's, you can, that's a de minimis fringe benefit. It's excluded from income. So it's not taxable. You can just ignore it. Well, what does that mean? Well, the regulation, the tax regulations give examples of a uh, fruitcake, ham, turkey, those kinds of things. Gifts that are gift cards are cash equivalents. Cash is never considered to be a de minimis fringe benefit because it's not impractical to account for. You know what it is. And the same thing is true with a gift card. Okay. So, you know, I read recently that. The average fruitcake 
is rewrapped and given to somebody else. And, and it, it lasts sometimes 10 or 15 years. Those things are just circulating. And maybe that's why they taste so terrible. <laughs> that's my conclusion. So uh, and we know that I think I read a statistic that 30 to 35 percent of all Christmas gifts generally are rewrapped and given to somebody else. Regifting. Oh. <laughs> so anyway, let's see some a few other things. This is the perfect time, December 1, to start reclassification of workers. So here's the point. Many churches treat people as self-employed, independent contractors, even though they're not. They're, they're compensated. They're full-time. There's no way those people are self-employed. And church leaders think, you know, we really need to reclassify this person. And so as an employee, and the reason they don't want to do that is because they, they're subject to the withholding requirements. But the fact is, there are penalties that can be assessed against you, any employer, including a church, if you treat an uh, employee as self-employed. So if you, if you decide, yeah, we have certain staff members, we, we probably have been incorrect to report them as uh, self-employed. This is the best time to make that reclassification. January 1, start, you know, I get this question all the time, you know, and it's May. Uh, well, what do we do now? Well, you can change now, but it makes it more likely that your situation is going to come into focus of some IRS auditor's desk. And they're, they're going to, there may be a contact, you know, what's going on here? Why, why, did, it, why did you shift this person in, in May? So uh, it makes it more credible if it's, in, if it's January 1. Voluntary withholding, you know, many pastors, not as many as I would expect, but have elected voluntary withholding. Pastors are exempt from income tax withholding. But they they can elect voluntary withholding. They don't have to do it. But the fact is, if you don't elect voluntary withholding, you, you got to account for those quarterly estimated tax payments, and that gets to be very difficult when you you have a quarter of taxes due. Bang! That's a big ticket item, as opposed to taking it out of your paycheck fifty two times a year. It makes it more less painful. And so a lot of people want to do that. Uh, at, but the point is, now's the perfect time to do it as of January, as of the first paycheck of January. There you go. This is a good time to request updated forms from the IRS or just download them on the IRS website. You should always have in the church office. Let me just mention some, some forms that, that you need to have accessible. And that's form 4361, or excuse me, 463. Let me start with 463. That's a publication. These are all publications, by the way, that deals with business expenses, accountable, non-accountable reimbursement arrangements. What are travel expenses? What are transportation expenses? What are meal expenses? It's an excellent publication. So I encourage you to, to get that. Also, publication 526 is the IRS publication on charitable contributions. Very, very helpful. These are short 15 to 25 page publications. And then publication 517 is on uh, clergy tax reporting. You know, it's 25 pages, uh, pretty basic, but still not a bad idea to have one of those laying around the church office. So publication 1828, that's what's known as the church tax guide prepared by the IRS. Again, short, but very helpful information, I think, in there. Publication 1771, this is about charitable contributions. And I think the most valuable thing about this publication is that it gives several examples of acceptable charitable contribution receipts 
that a church can give to donors. You know, churches struggle with this. Well, we, we want to report all this giving uh, to our donors. Well, how do we do it? Well, what's the best way to word that receipt? So there you go. That, that's, they have examples in that publication, 1771. It's very important to understand that there are specific rules that apply to the receipt you give to donors that really kick in at $250 or more. Now, that's not cumulative. That's individual contributions of $250 or more. If you're in that category, you know, somebody gives $500 to a missions fund or $1,000 to the building fund, or some people that tithe give $250 every pay, every uh, week. It's very important to be familiar with these rules that apply to contributions in excess of $250. Because if you don't, the public the contribution deduction is going to be denied. And I've seen it happen many, many times. So publications 526 goes into great detail explaining these heightened requirements that apply if you hit the $250 limit. Publication 15A gives you a lot of information on withholding. 15B is really a great publication. That, that is devoted to fringe benefits. It lists about 25 different kinds of fringe benefits. That is extremely helpful. Churches ask these questions all the time. How do we handle this fringe benefit? Is this taxable? Is this not taxable? Very helpful information in that. And then finally, publication 15T, 15T as in Tom, that, that deals with uh, tax withholding. Uh, it helps you to determine how much income tax we withhold from somebody's pay. So those are some of the, just a, ru a rundown quickly of what I consider Eureka to be some of the more important end of year tasks. Well, I hope everybody had their paper and pen ready um, because okay. you covered some important information there. Uh, as you well know, nearly a third of donations come in at this final quarter. And not only that, 12% of all giving happens right there at the very final days um, in December. So as churches plan for year-end giving and, and the financial and tax matters related to it, what you've shared and I think what this episode is going to provide is going to be very timely. Now, I recall you saying that the housing allowance is particularly important because that is one of those things that if you don't designate it in a timely way, you lose the benefit. So can you just share a little bit more on why that timing is so important for a housing allowance and also share whose task is it to make sure that the housing allowance is properly designated and timely designated? Well, I suppose that's the church's responsibility. They don't have to do it. Some churches do not designate a housing allowance for their clergy. You know, sometimes there's not a good relationship between a pastor and the board, let's say. And I've seen this happen where, where church board members say, hey, we don't get a housing allowance. Why should our pastor? Uh, so we're not going to declare one. That's okay. They can do that. I think it's unfortunate, but that's the rule. So, but you're absolutely right. The housing allowance is lost if it's not designated in advance. It's got to be in advance. It cannot be designated retroactively. So if you get into November of a year and you, you discover, or maybe the pastor discovers, hey, you know what? The church board never designated a housing allowance for me for this year. Can you do it? And can you backdate it to January 1? The answer is no, you can't do that. 
and it has to be designated in advance. Now, that doesn't mean you can't do one. So let's say it's November 1st where you discover this. You can designate a housing allowance for the remainder of the year, but only for the remainder of the year. So only expenses incurred in the last two months can be a housing allowance can apply to those. So I recommend that every church board adopt what I call a safety net allowance. And by that, I mean, this is just, you know, something to file away that we've done this. So we're going to avoid the problem of a housing allowance designation that's not timely. And so what, what does that mean? That Well, for example, the board could have a continuing resolution that unless otherwise specifically designated, we hereby designate 40% or some other amount, let's just say 40% of the compensation of every minister on staff for this and all future years, unless otherwise provided, to be a housing allowance. I think that gets you there. That, you know, that's better than not having anything. And I, I've never seen that addressed by the IRS or the tax court in any case, but I think that would work. So even in your annual designation of a housing allowance, I think it's important that the form that I use for the housing allowance in my annual church and clergy tax guide, I've got an actual housing allowance form in there. And it, it, uh, it states at the bottom in the form itself that this the housing allowance for this next year shall be X and for all future years unless otherwise provided. I think that's good. I think that gives you some argument that you can avoid the problem of belated housing allowances. And how does that happen? It happens because we're all so busy in the last quarter, certainly the last month of the year, right at the time you should be designating housing allowances for all clergy on staff. It gets to be so busy and it's just not, people don't realize that we didn't do it. I've seen this happen so many times. So, but that's what one of the things that I see. So, no, that's very helpful, Rich. And I, I think you're exactly right. I'm staring at, um, I've got the same book <laughs> that, that you've written that's, that's right in my library. Way, don't, don't read it after 9 p.m. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm an early to bed, early to rise type. So yeah, I don't, I don't try to assign those things to myself late. Well, one of the other areas that you touched on that I think folks will really appreciate hearing more about is related to proper giving statements. You and I have seen the tax cases that unfortunately where churches have not handled this properly. And um, there's no worse way, I think, to create a poor relationship with the donor is to not handle their giving statements properly. So what are some critical considerations around proper giving statements? What do we mean when we say a proper giving statement? You touched on the contemporaneous component. Could you share a bit more there? Well, the the key focus is on the gifts of $250 or more. They must, those donors must receive what's called a written acknowledgement. And it's very specific in the regulations, what has to go, what the contents of that form are. It's, It's really simple once you get the hang of it. And let me just go down the list here. The name of the church and the donor, that's obvious. Number two, the amount of the cash contribution, if it's a cash contribution. Number three, the description, but not value of any non-cash contribution, such as a bicycle, car, et cetera. And one of the following, a statement that no goods or services were provided by the church in return for the contribution, or a statement that goods or services that a church provided in return for a contribution consisted entirely of intangible religious benefits 
or three, a description and good faith estimate of the value of goods or services other than intangible religious benefits that the church provided in return for the contribution. Now, what's an, what's an intangible religious benefit? That just means most churches don't really have anything like that. It may be a pew rental. You can believe that in, in some areas. Your older churches often had a arrangement where people could rent pews, and that's our family's pew there. You go to what I, I was in school in Massachusetts, and you go to these old 18th century churches, and you see these little brass plates on the pew. This is for the the, the Smith family or whatever. And uh, just like the first time I was in a an Assembly of God church with my girlfriend who became my wife, I, I can remember uh, I was an atheist at this point, and we went to sit down in the pew before the service when the service was just about to start. And this elderly gentleman walked over to me and he said, sir, I'm sorry, but you're in my seat. <laughs> Boy, what a great impression that was. I could, you know what, Enrique, I could have walked out of that church. I was tempted to. These uh. people are nuts. And I, what if I would have walked out of church that day? Because of that guy's behavior, none of this would have ever happened. Thank God uh, he had another plan. That's right. So uh, I thought about those Massachusetts churches with those brass plates on the pews. So, so that's it. That's an but an intangible religious, religious benefit is the value you get from the the church, from worship services, from counseling, from the pastor, people praying for you. So, there's a lot of wonderful benefits you get, but they're intangible, and you need to. You can say that. Well, the other option is, like I said, just a statement that no goods or services were provided in return for your contribution. Those are the magic words. If those are not on the receipt, the donation is lost. I mean, you're right. We have seen horror stories. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of the biggest contribution I've seen that was de denied by the tax court. I've seen many over a million dollar contributions. And while it's, the, the regulations are clear, it's technically the, the responsibility of the donor to get that receipt. You contact the church office. You get the receipt. It's not the church doing it. But you, you're right, Erika. If somebody loses a million or even a thousand or ten thousand dollar contribution, they're they're going to blame the church, and you're going to have a very unhappy member on your on hand who's going to be demanding that you rectify this situation. So, what does that mean? You anybody that makes a contribution of non-cash property to the church should receive from the church a IRS form eighty two eighty three. And the instructions to Form 8283, those are two separate documents. Just go to irs.gov. You can download these. To make sure you have a current copy because these things are adjusted every year. But if you give the donor publication 526, Form 8283, and the instructions to Form 8283, you've done your duty. Now you, and say, now, you take this information to your accountant, and so you can see what the law requires here. So that, 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 I think, is so important to do. Otherwise, you run the risk of people not getting, a, a, in some cases, a very substantial contribution. I just, I just wrote a short article on the case a few weeks ago where somebody lost a $38 million gift because of this, the lack of these words. No goods or services were provided. And re Can you believe that? And, and the tax court said, we agree. And the IRS said, we agree that he made the gift. Mm -hmm. and get a deduction because of our technical requirements. Well, so. and as you recall, Rich, and, and you know, I, I won't go too far down this road because I think you've outlined it 
perfectly. But you know, these cases where then the church tries to correct their mistake and then send a subsequent giving statements or acknowledgement with the, as you, you know, the proper language and the court says, well, 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 now it's not contemporaneous, right? So you, yeah. you've still yeah. not met our standards. So it really is critical that, that churches have proper information on their acknowledgement statements. And as you've outlined, while it is the obligation of the donor to request this information when it's provided by the church, it is the church's obligation to make sure that that acknowledgement includes all of the information that we've outlined here. Let me interject one other comment here. Sure. That, well, let's see, we've talked about the, uh, it's the, as you just said, I'll just underscore, it's technically the donor's responsibility, but as we, we've said, both of us, it's important that the church take the initiative here and make sure that this larger gifts especially that the proper wording is on the receipt. So there's no loss of that tax deduction. And by the way, one other thing I might mention here is for those gifts in excess of $5,000, the donor must get a qualified appraisal. It's not just putting a receipt together where you say, we didn't provide goods or service. That's all well and good. You need to do that. But in addition, if the donor values a non-cash gift at in excess of $5,000, then the donor has to get a qualified appraisal. Now, that's that's a technical term. It doesn't mean just any real estate appraiser. It, it's a, it's a, a person must be a qualified appraiser to give a qualified appraisal. And there, the regulations deal with this in great detail. And I just want to say, this is not just any appraiser. You've got to get somebody that's qualified and meets the requirements. And so you can just ask appraisers, are you qualified to give qualified appraisals of donated property. That's that's the the key issue, and uh, they've got to be able to do that. And then the church must come, or the donor must uh, complete what's called the form eighty two eighty three section B, which is on the back side, which is uh, a qualified appraisal summary, where you just summarize that appraisal, and that has to be signed by the church, by the way, as well as the appraiser and the donor. And so, and there again is where I've seen most of the cases of huge donations of non-cash property, homes, jewelry, et cetera, coin collections being denied by the IRS because of a failure to meet the substantiation requirements. In this case, they didn't get a qualified appraiser or didn't get a qualified appraisal. And so uh, very, very important to understand that. And again, the donor is gonna, is gonna blame the church if he loses that de deduction. So give those donors that make gifts of property the 8283 form, the instructions to that form, and IRS Publication 526. And uh, if they have any competent tax preparer, they should that person should pick this up, but just to be on the safe side. This is so helpful, Rich. And you know, as, we, don't as, want to read it. we don't want to be reading about your church, you know, <laughs> having a member that lost a million dollars. <laughs> Absolutely. If you're listening to this podcast, we don't want to see your case come up in the tax court. Make sure you are well prepared. Of course, Rich, we can't cover everything in one episode. You have already mentioned some very valuable resources, but what would you want to point listeners to that could help them with year-end matters? You've prepared some great information. Can you point them to some information, some resources that they can use outside of this podcast? Well, the 
that list of publications that I, I mentioned at the outset, I would certainly recommend those. I think the publication 526 is probably the most important. That's the summary of charitable contribution rules and requirements. And then in the tax guide, my annual church and clergy tax guide is another resource that I go into great depth there trying to explain these substantiation requirements for charitable contributions, giving examples of all the cases where where deductions were denied and why and what the church should have done. Uh, I think you, could, you would find that to be very helpful as well. That's fantastic. And you, um, I'll also toot your horn on um, church law and tax. You provided a great article on end of year task. And I think that that's updated regularly. So we'll include the, the links to those recommendations um, here in the show notes. And we're thankful again for you being with us, Richard Hammer, for your ongoing insights and blessings that you have been to the church community. for listening to the Church Law Podcast. We invite listeners like you to submit questions and comments. Send your email with the subject line podcast question to contact at takethenextcall.com and subscribe to the Church Law Podcast to get each new episode and let other church leaders know about the great resources that this podcast is for the church community and continue to join us on the journey. We'll see you in the next episode. This podcast is brought to you by Church Law and Tax, part of Christianity Today's podcast network. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that the host and the publisher are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional person should be sought. Due to the nature of the U.S. legal system, laws and regulations constantly change. Listeners are encouraged to consult with legal counsel to verify the information provided here remains current. Visit churchlawandtax.com for more insights. Thank you.